Good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Manic Manor Podcast. This is Mitchie. So before we get into our topic today, I have a question for you. What was your favorite subject in school? Or college? Mine was history. I mean, I always was able to get a solid A when it came to American history, but then again, they always kind of taught the same spiel each year over and over again. They'd go over the Industrial Revolution, you know, the American Civil War, go over the same presidents over and over again, and my history book would kind of end right when 9-11 happened, and that was it. So it was pretty easy for my growing brain to just, you know, memorize all that information and regurgitate it out. So by the time I hit a senior in high school, I had that all memorized. So it was easy just to get a solid 100 at that point. But when Brian told me about this one woman that we're going to be discussing today, Mary Pinchot Meyer, he said that I would probably find her interesting and boy was he right. So for anybody who is well aware of American history, or just anybody that's lived in the world, I mean, let's be honest, everybody just knows of the notorious JFK, knows that he was completely coated in scandal. He had his women. He loved his women. I mean, one of his most famous affairs that he ever had was with the bombshell that was Marilyn Monroe. But there were many others. And one of those many others was, of course, Mary Pinchot Meyer. And I had no idea who this woman was until Brian told me, Hey, there's this unsolved case that I just heard about. You might find interest in it because it's an unsolved murder. And I was like, oh, really? Send me some links. Let me look into this. I would definitely love to cover this on the podcast. So, I dived into the rabbit hole, and I dived deep. And I was not disappointed, and I do not think you guys are going to be disappointed either. So, let's dive into this, because this is something that should have been in the history books, but never was. And whoo-wee. I had fun with this. So, let's get into it. So... Mary Pinchot Meyer was just born, you know, Mary Pinchot, October 14th, 1920. And she was born to a family of a very high pedigree. Her father, Amos, or Amos Pinchot, was a lawyer. And he had assisted in funding the masses, or I think it's pronounced the masses. And that was a radical journal at the time that, and was a key figure in the Progressive Party. And her mother, Ruth, was a journalist, even though we're looking at the 1920s, and that wasn't um, a time necessarily when women would go out and work or anything, anything of the sorts. They were kind of homebodies. Her mother was still a worker. She was a journalist who would work on pieces such as The Nation and The New Republic. So that's pretty damn impressive, if you ask me. Not only that... Kind of off to the side, we're looking at her uncle, who served twice as the governor of Pennsylvania, and also worked under President Rough Rider himself, Theodore Roosevelt, as head of the U.S. Forest Service. 
Now, Mary was also the eldest of two sisters. Her youngest sister, Antoinette, um, most of their childhood they spent in Pennsylvania. Now, these sisters, um, they got very good educations. Um, they had a very progressive and left-wing educational upbringing as well. Um, they were raised around individuals um, such as Robert LaFollette and Louis Brandy. Uh, they would visit the home quite often, probably because of, you know, her father and her mother's upbringing and stuff. So, um, both Mary and Antoinette were raised with a very leftist way of life. So, along with that kind of upbringing and having a very good education, they ended up going to schools um, in Manhattan, like the prestigious uh, Beerley School, and... By the time Mary went to college, she was enrolled in Vassar College. So, when she attended uh, college, one of her classmates was saying that she was the most brilliant and beautiful girl out of the entire class. And while she was in class, she was gaining attention from all of the guys as well. Now, she did gain the attention of a fellow classmate named William Atwood, but I think that romance was short-lived, um, but she did begin dating him in 1938. Now, while she was uh, courting him at the time, she did meet the acquaintance of a young man, just, uh, just a young gentleman by the name of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Nobody, nobody major. They just met at a dance at Shout. Um, it was, um, just a quaint first meeting, but put that on the back burner because he will come back into the equation, like I said. So after that first meeting, they were kind of smitten with each other, but they wouldn't meet for a little while, so Mary continued to pursue her education. And the further she dived in, she began to show an interest in a little thing called communism. But we're entering the 1940s. And through the 1940s and the 1950s, that was a big no-no in the United States. But did her mother and father show a concern about that? Mm, not really. Uh, her father actually seemed more intrigued and delighted than upset about it. Her father was actually quoted as saying, Children of that age ought to be radical anyhow. I, I just gotta know... How did her parents come to be so damn supportive? Because my grandparents and my great-grandparents around that time were the complete polar opposite. Like, it's fucking mind-blowing. Holy hell. But, I mean, kudos on her father for being very supportive of her dreams. You go, girl. It made her into the boss that I think she is. It was also noted that um, Mary was a committed, devoted pacifist. Like, she would not throw a punch at anybody. So on top of being interested in communism, she was also somebody that was not willing to fight at all. So during her college years with all of this, she decided that she was going to become a, a member of the American Labor Party. So with all of that going on... She became a prime target of the United States, considering the Red Scare was going on around that time. 
But Mary decided to still pursue her education, and she did graduate from Vassar in 1942. And she found work being a journalist uh, at the United Press International, and she immediately found success. Now, most of the time when you graduate college, I mean, I found this with mine, she um, was immediately out there on the streets interviewing and doing all sorts of work, but most people end up just doing desk jobs, being receptionists and stuff, like I said. I had that issue, and a lot of people would have that issue, but she was so headstrong and confident in what she was doing, and she was bold and fearless and just knew what she wanted out of her life. And you got to take into consideration that during a time like this, that was just not heard of. And she was like the epitome of that lucky girl syndrome that everybody talks about on, on TikTok now. Like, it's unreal. Like, she wanted it. She got it. Things just went her way. And things went even better for her when, just two years later, she met this dashing young lieutenant in the Marine Corps named Cord Meyer. Ah. He was recovering from an injury to his eye. He got some shrapnel that literally took out his eye. So, as he was recovering from losing his eye, they would sit and talk for, like, all hours of the night. And they found that they shared similar views and pacifism and just an outlook on the way that the government was running things. So all of this caused them to share this deep bond within each other. And Cord was just absolutely smitten with Mary and vice versa. So it wasn't long before both of them knew that they were in love with each other and that they wanted to be together. So by April... 19th of 1945 they were married and after their marriage um, Mary started to realize you know with Cord's PTSD and the world around him Mary decided that she was going to publish a book regarding his experience during the Second World War expressing his pacifist views and what he had experienced and after she had published that book she continued to work as an editor for places like the Atlantic Monthly, before she ended up having her first child, um, a son, in 1945. So, like, she was just going at it. Getting married in 1945, publishing a book, continuing work, and having a child, uh, followed by another one in 1947. So this girl was just getting it. And... Then she decided, you know, I'm just going to take a break for a little bit, as she should. So she turned into becoming a housewife for some time, but decided this is boring, and attended some art class at the Art Students League in New York City. And this is when we start seeing her passion for art begin to grow. And she developed a love for things that were abstract and met a Russian artist named... Um, Nahum Takskyov. I'm so sorry if I mispronounced that. So he encouraged her to be very free with her creations, and it turned out she was really good at this as well. Like, this girl is fucking phenomenal at everything that she does. So after the birth of her second son and with the enrolling in art school, 
Cord um, decided that he himself had to match his wife's energy, so he would go on to become president of the United World Federalists. And that happened in May of 1947. And she would actually, in turn, become an editor and a writer for the journal for the Federalists. And by 1950, the couple welcomed their third son. So, oh my word. They have done a lot in a short period of time. But we're going to start seeing a kind of downswing after the birth of their third son because with the Federalist movement that Cord had started, there was some communist infiltration within the movement that he had been involved in. So Cord was starting to question that and as a result... Um, he moved his family to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and things just kind of started to change, and he did end up enrolling in the CIA after being recruited in. Now, we'll keep in mind here that he also kept this all on the secret. So while we know about this as we speak, everyone around them didn't know. As far as everyone around them, they just assumed that he had taken like a lowly government job. So after he was appointed and recruited into the CIA, the family once again was upped and moved to Washington, D.C. And they became members of the Georgetown elite, so to speak, or the Georgetown Society. And they started to adapt to the socialite way of life. And uh, Cord became what was known at the time Operation Mockingbird. And this was done in the early days of the Cold War, for anybody who didn't know, to implant um, pro-United States propaganda within American media to, you know, put out false stories or to exacerbate to the U.S. just um, how great the United States was to make the government look more favorable. But by August of 1953, you know, um, the so beloveded or beloveded, I'm so sorry, the so beloved Senator Joe McCarthy had accused Cord of being a communist because that's what McCarthy absolutely loved to do. It was like modern day witch trials, pointing fingers at everybody. You're a witch, you're a witch, you're a communist, you're this, you're that. So anybody that was in his sight was basically getting accused of being a communist. Cord was no exception, even if he worked for the CIA. So while Cord was under investigation and being questioned, things came to light that Mary, with her past, as we discussed earlier, with her being in college, having these ties and interest to communism, she had been under investigation as well. It had been reopened up. But of course, there was nothing there, and Cord did get cleared of all of those charges, and it was dropped on Mary's end as well. But this still made Cord very anxious, and as we discussed, this is a war veteran that was suffering from PTSD from World War II, and as anybody who has suffered from any form of PTSD, whether it be war or just simple PTSDs from anything that has happened to them in their life, that's not something that you can just get over. And the simplest of things, or even the most major, as somebody accusing you of something as bad as being a communist during the Red Scare is going to trigger some major shit. So, 
Cord was scared shitless, and now he's worried that there's people over his shoulder coming for his family. So he's paranoid everywhere he goes. And fate would have it, the family dog gets hit by a car and dies. So now Cord is absolutely terrified and concerned that maybe there's someone in the CIA or the CIA itself is involved and something could possibly happen to one of his children. And this is a foreshadowing of terrible events to come. So here is your trigger warning now because it is not going to go pretty. So with him being paranoid, the bliss of the family is now beginning to fade. And this happy family that we once saw where everything was just going amazing. And all of this happiness was just one thing right after another. It's going downhill. But wait, there's more. Now as fate would have it, by the summer of 1954, the Myers have some new neighbors. Remember that thing I told you to put on the back burner? They have new neighbors. Who would those neighbors be? The Kennedys. Mr. Kennedy has a new wife, Jackie. They purchased a house just down the road from where the Myers lived, and Mary soon became best friends with a Miss Jackie. And she would inadvertently end up catching the eye as Mr. Kennedy, as you will soon see. So Mary would be going down to the Kennedy's house, having tea, taking strolls with Miss Jackie during the day. Sometimes would be going down there just to have a little chit-chat, letting the boys play, doing whatever. But, um, as I said... Your trigger warning was a minute ago, and things are about to get very bad. Very, very bad. So I'll give you a moment if you want to skip over it a couple of seconds. Maybe skip over it about 30 seconds to a minute here. By December 18th of um, 1956, Mary's uh, nine-year-old son, Michael, was just outside of their home. Um, he was playing while he, and while he was outside, he was struck and killed by a driver. Now, before anybody, like, thinks it may have been one of those things, like what Cord was afraid of, I think it was proven that this entire thing was an accident because the driver himself was completely shooken up about it. Um... It showed a completely stronger side of Mary because she did end up actually having to comfort the driver. Um, it just uh, it just completely broke apart the marriage of Cord and Mary because um, by the time the um, ambulance arrived, there was nothing that they could do. It was like her son was dead upon impact. So she comforted the driver before she picked up her son and went with him in the ambulance, but it was too late. There was nothing that they could do. Although, for a moment, um, it did bring Cord and Mary together just for them to be strong for their remaining two boys. It ultimately resulted in the separation that resulted in their divorce. So by 1958, Cord was out of the family home following their son's death. 
and Mary had filed a petition citing that Cord had been extremely cruel and her happiness and mental health was deteriorating and it was unendurable to um, cohabit and co-parent with him. So there was no, um, no possible chance of reconciliation. So, of course, Cord was infuriated by this, but by this point there was nothing that they can do. So Mary just decided that she was going to continue on living her life with her two living sons and ended up, I think, she was living with her sister and her brother-in-law at this point. Um, she did um, form a relationship with an artist named Kenneth Noland, and then she started forming a relationship with a uh, Robert Kennedy. Yes, that Robert Kennedy. And rumor had it, um, sometime after her divorce from court, that her phone was bugged and tapped by the head of counterintelligence of the CIA, as Cord was still employed there, but there's no, like, definite answer on whether or not that was. But anyway, now we're gonna fast forward a few more years. We see, um, Mary's relationship between the Kennedys is still growing, and her relationship with John is getting much more closer, and by January of 1962, people were saying the relationship had become way more sexual, and despite her being friends with Jackie, she was just having a full-blown affair with JFK at this point. Now, friends of the Kennedys were voicing concerns about this, and some had voiced how they believed Jack was just completely head over heels in love with Mary or at least heavily smitten by her. And it was like they were absolutely playing with fire. And that Mary was constantly visiting the president and constantly visiting the White House, coincidentally on days when Jackie was nowhere to be found at the White House. And there was actually proof with White House gate logs showing between October of 1961 and August of 1963 where she had been to the White House on at least 15 occasions, usually, like I said, when Jackie's whereabouts were unknown. And there were so many rumors at this point um, that speculated that JFK had said to her that he had intended to divorce Jackie for Mary. But was that really the truth? I mean, the world may never know. For all we freaking know, with as many mistresses as JFK was said to have had, he probably said that to every last one of them. I love you, baby. You're my only girl. I'm gonna divorce you for her. And then at the last damn minute, something happened and he reconciled with Jackie. The definition of a fuckboy. Only for the Kennedys. But one thing is for sure... As you can see from the pictures that I could find that I'm going to post, especially for the YouTube video, albeit it wasn't quite a lot, Mary was around him quite a bit, and it was definitely for sure that she had quite an influence around him. So, by January of 1963, a publisher at the Washington Post stated that JFK was indeed having an affair with Mary, but he had brought an end to it. However, they still did see each other around social functions, but 
It was kind of strange that the affair really didn't make a lot of headlines, but then again, I guess it wasn't really surprising because at this point it was kind of known that the Kennedys were known to be the playboys of the area because we had seen it quite a bit. But when JFK was assassinated in November of 1963, um, a friend of Mary's named Tim Leary claimed he received a concerning phone call from Mary that was rather uh, disturbing and concerning, where she seemed to be either drugged or drunk or a combination of the two. And she was grief-stricken and distraught in the call, and she was referring to John quite a bit about how they, talking about the government, more than likely couldn't control John anymore and that he was changing too fast and that the government was trying to cover everything up. And she spoke about being so afraid and needing to see Tim before ending the call really quickly and that that was the last, it was the last time that he had ever heard from her. Which brings us to the fateful day of October 12th, 1964, around noon. Mary was living in Georgetown around the time still, and the majority of her time she had been spent painting and usually around the noon lunch hour. She would take a lunchtime walk around the towpath of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal. That day she was doing what she had normally done, she was doing her walk, only this time there was a stranger that approached her. Um, the stranger approached her and she let out a scream and she was shot twice. But by the time someone arrived, the person was already gone and she was laying dead on the sidewalk. Now, it didn't take police long to locate someone who they believed was the suspect. They located a man named Raymond Crump within like 45 minutes who had been nearby at the time. And this was still at a point um, when segregation and racism was still at a high point, if we're going to be honest. So they arrested Crump based solely on the fact that he was nearby and a mechanic thought that he fit the description. And they thought he was standing over the body when they came because it was like a mechanic that had run over and saw her. And they were just like, I don't know, it could have been him. So they took Crump and they started investigating him and so they did all these tests. But when they did all these test runs and everything, they were unable to locate any kind of gun nitrate or residue powder on Crump's body or his hands or anything. So the police searched the area extensively. They weren't even actually able to find a gun. So it was as if whoever had done this it was like a perfect crime. A professional hitman had done it. So, that earlier phone call that Mary had done to Tim, could it have been true? Could somebody have been on to her? Could it have carried some weight? But, at Crump's trial on July 19, 1965, he was defended by a civil rights lawyer, Debbie Roundtree, who took on his case pro bono for free. She argued that he was such a timid and simple-minded man that if he was of guilt of the murder, he would have just simply confessed. 
He was victimized and just a poor black man. And it wasn't something fair to scapegoat him for. He was just simply there at the wrong time. And he was blamed for it because it was a rather wealthy white woman. And he was a black man who was being blamed for it. So, in the end, Crump actually ended up being quitted for the murder of Mary, and to this date, her case remains unsolved, and there's not been any further leads on who could have been her murderer. So, like I said, nobody knew Cord was an operative for the CIA, and people at the time also did not know about her affair with JFK minus a few close friends until it became, you know, kind of public knowledge after the fact. And after the murder of Mary, it was said that her brother-in-law was said to have found a locked steel box containing tons of letters with confessions to the affair with JFK and there were rumors of a diary with confessions as well. But the brother-in-law said that diary in question is actually not a confession of all these deep secrets that people thought it was. It's just paint swatches. So Cord ended up leaving the CIA in 1977 and wrote several uh, tell-all books, including an autobiography called Facing Reality. From world federalism to the CIA and he makes a comment about Mary's murder in there saying he believes that she had been assaulted that day and killed in her struggle to escape and that he's kind of just satisfied with that thought process. He doesn't want to think that it was like some sort of inside job that was done by the CIA or anything like that. But that is the case of Mary Pinchot Meyer. So, I guess we're never going to actually know what happened to her. And it's very unique because it seems like there's no definite ending to what happened. But there is one thing for sure. She was a badass woman. Despite the affair with JFK. But even then she left a legacy for sure. She was a unique and definitely headstrong woman, and her impression on the world can definitely be felt. So if you guys have any comments on this case, or any other cases that you would like to recommend, please feel free to let me know. Um, you can email me at manicmanapodcast at gmail.com. You can also contact me on Facebook, Manic Manor Podcast, or on Instagram at Manic Manor Podcast. Um... We do have some more episodes coming out that I've got uh, stowed away, so I hope you guys stay tuned for those. But as I said, until next time, we'll see you guys in the next videos and the next podcasts. Hope you guys stay tuned. Bye-bye.